Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to study this book because we believe, we hold to the fact that it is the Word of God and these things were written for our admonition and as examples for us. And Lord, we don't want to repeat those bad examples, but rather to emulate the good ones. And so, Lord, since this is all a part of the way you have dealt with man in the past, help us, Lord, to understand those lessons for today. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we were um, getting out of third service this morning and I saw the windstorm, I thought of the children of Israel. It's bad enough to just walk out of a building that has a temperature-controlled environment and walk out into the parking lot with blowing dust and get into your car that's temperature-controlled so that you can drive to your home that's temperature-controlled. But imagine 40 years in the desert. Now, this is desert where you live here. This, no doubt about it. This is the desert. But imagine being out where there's no trees, no windbreakers, no buildings, just where you could get pelted with sand and have to huddle inside your tent and everything's sandy and dusty. They've neared the end of their journey. Uh, and remember last week, I kind of gave an informal poll of how many have lived in tents very long or stayed in tents camping, and some of you said you stayed in there for a long period of time. I, I got a note afterwards I wanted to share uh, from Dorothy Wetland. She said that we, the whole family, five children and parents, camped in a 10 by 16 tent while we built our house on the same acre in Sonoma County for one and a half years. I think she takes the record, don't you? <laughs> Said Kristen was only two, two years old. <laughs> Do you remember that at all? No. Well, that's good. <laughs> and John was four. That's what made him, you know, tough enough to be a professional pitcher. And then she said, I never, underline, want to camp that long again. <laughs> well, neither did the children of Israel. They've had it at this point. And they're camped in the plains of Moab. They're ready to cross the Jordan. But first, we have a highlighted episode of a guy by the name of Balaam. We were introduced to him last week. He's a peculiar fellow. He's a very greedy guy. And at the same time, God uses... This pagan prophet, this diviner, not only to speak to, but to speak through. And you, Now, it's hard for some of you to figure that out theologically. It's hard for me to figure it out. But having read chapter 22, I feel a little bit better because God spoke through a donkey. And if God can speak through, and I would say an unregenerate donkey, I've never seen a saved one. And God could speak through Balaam, and he does speak some incredible prophecies. Balaam was a Mesopotamian Baru, or an Akkadian priest. That is, he was a seer. It is said that he would get visions from the gods. He believed in a, a uh, polytheistic pantheon. And he would read organs of animals. That's what the Mesopotamian Barus or these Akkadian seer priests would do. They would take livers and anything else that jiggled and they would look at it and they would 
you know, see, wow, I see, you know, it's lifeline, and it's, you know, it was just a sham, but they would supposedly predict the future this way. Well, Balak, the king of Moab, sends for Balaam, the son of Beor, from the area beyond the Euphrates River, because this guy had a reputation, and yet God came to this man, Balaam, and said, don't go. And even though God said, don't go, and he got the message loud and clear, he has to ask God again. Because he really wanted to go, because there was a promise that this guy would get wealth. He would be handsomely rewarded, and because of his greed, he goes with this group of people, and yet God says, okay, you're going to go, but you're only going to speak the words that I tell you to speak. And in chapter 22, we have that famous story of the angel of the Lord is posed with a drawn sword, and the donkey sees it, but the prophet does not. And the donkey has enough horse sense, pardon the expression, to move out of the way and crush Balaam's foot in the process. And Balaam starts beating the donkey. And as he beats the donkey, it says God gave articulation to the donkey and he could speak in a human voice. He said, I don't believe that. Well, you've watched Mr. Ed, haven't you? <laughs> Hollywood can do it. God can do it in real life. And the donkey started speaking to Balaam. He said, why are you beating me? I've been a good donkey. I haven't done any harm. I've been a faithful donkey all these years. And Balaam, instead of going, wait a minute, you can't talk. He goes, well, let me tell you why I'm beating you. And he just reciprocates and has this conversation. So, you know, you wonder about a guy like this. God spoke through a donkey and it wasn't the last time. I think God still speaks through donkeys. There have been many times where I'm amazed that God would use me. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. When I was a kid, we worked for an old lady named Virginia Stevens. We mowed her lawn. And she had a little bird. It was actually a pretty big parrot named Keto. And Keto really had a vocabulary. We would come in and um, Keto, named after Keto Ecuador, uh, would talk to us. He would actually memorize my brother's name, and, you know, we'd come in the door, and the bird would say, Robert, Robert, and, you know, Polly want a cracker, and just had a whole repertoire. And whenever Virginia was out of town, we would babysit the bird. And we thought, hey, let's teach it some new words. <laughs> and they weren't the best of words. They were impolite. And it was really a trick. And when Virginia would get home, it would take a while. But whenever we came around the house, that bird would start saying some of those things and, you know, really threw Virginia off. That has absolutely nothing to do with our study tonight. <laughs> but in chapter 22, look at verse 34. <laughs> and Balaam said, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, after this episode, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Now listen to this. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Don't be swayed. He's really not sincere. He'll go along with this whole thing of reading the future and cursing Israel, or at least he thinks he will, up till the very last. There's a lot of people who have the right vocabulary. They say the right things to God or about God, 
But in their heart, it's simply an excuse to do their own will. They'll couch their life in spiritual language. But what they're really doing is doing their own will in God's name, thinking they can get by with it. So he's not wanting to forsake God altogether, but at the same time, his heart is, he's a pagan worshiper. He worships many gods. His heart is not devoted to the true God of Israel. We know this because of what happens later on as we go through the story and later on in chapter 31. And in the New Testament, he's mentioned three times. He's mentioned by Peter, speaks of the way of Balaam. He's spoken by Jude, and he mentions the error of Balaam. And finally, John in Revelation speaks of the doctrine of Balaam. All of it relates to greed. Balaam is never mentioned in good company like Abraham and Isaac and David and Balaam. He's never mentioned in that light. In the book of Jude, he's mentioned with the same company as Cain, who was the first murderer, as Korah, who was the prototype rebel, and then finally Balaam, that prototype greedy person. So he's in the ministry for what he can get out of it financially. I hate to say this, but it's very true. There are still people who are in the ministry simply for what they can get out of it. They'll couch their ministry in spiritual language. Stand up in front of people with antics. Oh, I got a vision. Oh, there's 10 people here tonight. The Spirit just revealed to me. Each of them have $10,000 to give. And they'll go through this shenanigans. I'd like to pull the plug on them. And yet there are a dime a dozen. They're all over the place. Balaam was after that sort. Now, in the last verse of the chapter, it says... So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him to the high places of Baal, Bamoth Baal, which is the mountaintop for the purpose of Baal worship, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. He builds seven altars, and then later he builds seven more altars. And he goes to this long ritual of sacrifice, not like the children of Israel, but simply his idea is that he's somehow going to placate or propitiate the will of God. He's going to somehow, by his sacrifices and by reading these organs, get God to curse the people or get God's permission so that he can curse the people so that he can get the reward. You know, he'll do it here and he'll look at the people, build seven altars, and then instead he'll give a blessing. And then over here he thinks, well, I'll try it over here. Seven different times. Building altars, supposedly to curse the people, God won't let them. Yet he keeps persisting. Now, that kind of thinking is still with us. We pray. God says, no. Now, God has the right to say no, doesn't he? God has editing rights over your prayers. God doesn't owe you to give you everything that you want. God loves you too much to give you what you want. What parent would give anything they wanted to their children? A bad parent. But they think, well, I'll pray harder. And that doesn't work. Well, I'll pray with ten people. That well, I'll fast. And somehow I'll twist God's arm. And I'll manipulate sovereign, immutable God to do what I want him to do. And that's exactly what Balaam is trying to do. And God is ultimately sovereign. That's the beauty about this story. God won't let this guy get away with it, no matter how many antics he tries on it. And he tries to call down curses. 
We had a guy picketing out here. Seems that lately we get a few of these. But this guy was, you know, uh, having predictions that he had typed out about the end of the world. And he uh, claimed to be a prophet. In fact, he gave himself some biblical name. I forget exactly. Anyway, he was out there and one of our assistant pastors went out to talk to him. And the, the one that did, Bill, has got a real gentle spirit. But, you know, he's going to ask the right questions and and the guy got all upset at Bill. You know, how dare you touch God's anointed? That would be him. And uh, he started calling down curses on Bill. He says, I'd call spinal meningitis on you and these curses. Ooh, wow. You know, listen, you're going to find a night, as Balaam found out, when Balak says, curse the people, he says, how can I curse whom God has blessed? You don't manipulate God's sovereign will. Yet there was this thinking in ancient Semitic times that my words are containers that are powerful containers. And that if I fill my words with faith, I can call into reality and God must obey what I say, what I confess with my mouth. It's again a very heretical teaching that is still with us today in many Christian circles. He tries to call down these curses. So, took him to the high places that he might see the extent of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, chapter 23, verse 1, Build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Now, 14 animals would give him a lot of livers to jiggle around and other organ donations uh, for the purpose of reading the future. That's precisely what they did. They would take the organs of these animals and position them a certain way and come up with a prophecy. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. Now let's just stop here for a moment. Every now and then, you'll get the unbelieving world who tries to rewrite the New Testament like the Jesus Seminar people or the liberal higher critics. They'll say, hey, you know, these things never existed. You've got a story about Balaam. We have no record Balaam ever existed. It's a fanciful story. A donkey that talks? An angel with a sword drawn? Come on. I mean, that's right out of the Disney movies. That stuff doesn't happen. This is simply human language. This is simply a projection of one psychological whatever. In 1967, once again, the archaeologists proved wrong the critics. In an archaeological dig in Jordan, in a place called Deir Allah, they discovered 119 plaster shards, plaster tablets. And they found on it the inscription over and over again, Balaam, the son of Beor. It must have been some temple or some ancient cultic uh, stone of some kind for a worshiping stone, but it bore his name in the first three verses. His name was mentioned four times as coming from the other side of the Euphrates, it gave him the, the term. It was written in the ancient uh, Aramaic language. It said he was a seer of the gods. 
He saw visions in the night. And it even uses the Hebrew term for God, El. And then it uses the term Shaddaiim, the Hebrew word for the mighty ones. El Shaddai is one of the terms of God in Hebrew. Shaddaiim, speaking about Balaam calling the mighty ones. But they used a Hebrew derivative. And so the critics looked at that dig in 1967 and went, Oh, sorry. We were wrong again. This happens, by the way, over and over and over again. You've got these wise guy critics who say, ah, this is never true. And archaeology always proves these guys wrong. And I love to watch it. It's so abundant. It's, it's, it's comical. Nelson Gluick, one of the foremost archaeologists in Israel who is now dead, said that archaeology has never controverted a single biblical passage. As far as we know, he's an unbeliever. And that's what he said because he dug in the land of Israel. Anyway, there's that uh, archaeological backup. So he says, stand by your burnt offering. I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. Now, you're about to be surprised because God is not only going to speak to him, but God will use him to speak some pretty incredible truths. Stop right there for a moment. A pagan priest in Akkadian Baru, a seer of the gods, a guy who reads organs. And God's going to speak to him and through him. Every now and then I'll hear a person say, well, God will never use an unclean vessel. You know what? God can use whoever he wants. And while that's a good aphorism, it's just not true all the time. There's plenty of proof of that in the scripture. Now, we should strive to be a vessel of honor. But God does choose foolish and weak. I'm not, that is not a lead-in to antinomianism. I'm not saying that you should do whatever you want and forget the consequences. We should always want to obey God. And I, I believe that you can get yourself into a place where you will be used by God more by your submission to Him. And this is an exception. But God can use a donkey, a guy like Balaam, and on and on. And he went to a desolate height. Now, in my mind, I can picture this. This is probably close to Mount Nebo. And if you come to Israel with us, when we stand down by the Dead Sea or Jericho, we'll point up, because it's in Jordan today, we'll point up and show you the heights, the desolate heights near Mount Nebo, probably where Balaam was able to look not down toward the Dead Sea, but look east at the plains of Moab in present-day Jordan. And God met Balaam. And he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars. I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him, and there he was, standing by the burnt offerings. He and all the princes of Moab. It's a comical picture, it really is, because Balak will do anything to see these people curse. He knows they're a spiritual people. He knows that warfare won't uh, 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 cause them to go away or overturn them. So he tries to use a spiritual means for a spiritual people. At least he has enough insight to realize spiritual warfare is really what's needed here. And so he's probably, you know, standing back there, you know, moving his fingers, saying, oh, I can't wait for this curse to come. And it says he took up his oracle and he said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come and denounce Israel. You see, Balak wanted God 
to give Balaam the permission, the God of these people, the permission to curse them. Listen to what he says, verse 8. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Now that's a good description of Israel. A nation that doesn't dwell alone, or excuse me, a, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself, reckoning itself among the nations. Israel is unique from all other nations. And Israel stands alone. It has always stood alone. We mentioned Thursday night. You've got a population of four and a half million people surrounded by a hundred million enemies in the Middle East. It's a precarious situation to say the least. They've always dwelt alone. When they have been dispersed in the past, whether in Babylon or in Rome or around the world, they seem to be a group of people that are able to resist what no other nation has been able to resist. Most nations amalgamate into the culture. They assimilate into the culture that surrounds them, except Israel. They remain pure, and they regathered in the land of 1948. They stand alone. Now, I think this is, should be a good description of Christians, don't you? Surrounded by the world, we should be in the world, but not of the world. Rather than being influenced by the world and becoming just like the world and taking on the value system of the world and what the world likes to do and to see and to become, to be a people that dwells alone with righteous value system, not amalgamating into our own culture. And Israel's been that way through their history. I, I like to look at Israel as a burning bush. The fires of persecution burn them, but they never get consumed. God always has a remnant and brings them back. And then he says, Who can count the dust of Jacob? Look how many there are, Balak. Or number one-fourth of Israel. And then he says, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. So far from cursing this people, he says, these guys, you know, look at how large, you know, God has obviously blessed them. And it's interesting about Israel. Persecution by the Babylonians, by the Romans, by Adolf Hitler, the thinning of their ranks has never diminished as a nation, that people. They seem to grow and grow stronger as God has made a covenant with them. It's a marvel to see. It's always great to be in the land. They're not diminished. Did you know that if you were to tally up all the Nobel Peace Prize given in history, most of them were taken by Jews? God has just equipped them in a special way. But then Balaam says, let me die the death of the righteous. You know, let, I want to be like them. Here I am, to, you're paying me to curse these people. I want to die like, like the righteous. Let me die the death of the righteous and my end be like his. You know, believers die differently from unbelievers. It takes a funeral to see the difference between a person's philosophy and life. Uh, an unbeliever might say, oh, I'm secure in what I believe. I don't, I don't care about death. Watch them when somebody kicks the bucket. Look in their eyes, deeply in their eyes, and look at the absolute abject hopelessness of that person. It's like the lights are on, nobody's home. At a funeral, you can look into the eyes of an unbeliever when they're facing death, when they realize life is very tenuous. 
And their philosophy has a hollow, shallow ring to it. And look at a believer at a funeral. Full of grief. They've lost their husband, their wife, their child, their parent. And yet, there's hope. There's that twinkle of hope. I know I'll see them again. I know there'll be a resurrection. That's why Paul in the book of Thessalonians says, Brethren, I'm writing these things, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow when people die. I'm going to do a funeral tomorrow. It'll be sorrowful, but it'll be filled with hope. I will feel sorry for the widow, for the children. I'll grieve with them. I'll hug them. I'll let them cry. But for the one who has died, I've known him. And I know where he is. It'll be a graduation ceremony tomorrow. It'll be a coronation ceremony. We will rejoice in that funeral. And I'll guarantee you, there'll be unbelievers there who are going, what on earth is going on? Why are these people singing? Because we can look in the face of death and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? And only the righteous can do that. And you can really see it at death. And that's an appointment every one of you will keep. Guaranteed. You won't be late for that appointment. You've been late for other appointments. You'll be on time for this one. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And will you say, all right, I'm home. Or you go, uh-oh. God, let me tell you my philosophy in my life that really kept me going and be a hollow ring to it then. Let me die the death of the righteous. I read that and go, oh, right on, amen. Jesus said to the man on the cross, today you'll be with me where? Paradise, yes. You know, I've never understood when people talk about reincarnation, who would want it? There's a lot of things I don't want to go through again. Braces. Acne. High school English. There's a lot of experiences I don't want all over again. Certainly, I wouldn't want to be an animal. Let me die the death of the righteous. Let his end be like his. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies. And look, you've blessed them so bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place. Okay, that one didn't work. Strike one. Let's try a, another vantage point. Another place from which you may see them, you shall see only the outer part of them. I'm not going to let you see the whole company this time, just a little portion of them. And you shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. The idea is somehow I'm going to put you in a vantage point that will cause you to bring forth a curse because the words, Balaam, that you speak are powerful. When you, if you curse them, I believe that the gods will be against them. Again, it's somehow I can manipulate divine sovereignty by my words. Now, I mentioned that that still goes on today. Oh, you bet it does. I just read a quote from Fred Price. Unfortunately, he's still on television. He said this, 
God cannot do anything on earth without your permission. It's, it's in writing. It's a quote. God must get your permission for him to act. Because when God created the earth and put man on it to keep it independent, he gave man all of the authority. So you have to give God permission to do anything. That absolutely rapes the sovereignty of God as a doctrine in the Bible. And it's absolutely heretical. Then Marilyn Hickey says that if you, you know, say to your body, I'm healed, and you fill your words with faith, that God must respond to your words. God has to respond to your words. Again, that takes away from the sovereignty of God. There's a lot of scriptures they don't like, like in Exodus, where God said, who created the lame and the blind? And God takes full responsibility for being sovereign over his creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is evil in the world. And it's not God's perfect will. And God will one day eradicate evil. But God is sovereign. And this is a beautiful example of the fact that you cannot manipulate that. No one can. And so he says, curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the field of Zophim, wherever that is, to the top of Pisgah, that's the mountain in the area, Nebo, and he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. Me and God have a thing going. It's a private conversation. Excuse us. And the Lord met Balaam, put a word in his mouth, and said, Go back to Balak, thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle, and he said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Now, there is a, I believe, deliberate contrast in the way he words it. He goes, now listen to me, son of Zippor. You are a son of a man of flesh. In contrast with God who never changes or who cannot lie. You know, you've got me changing places, changing positions. Well, look at him from here. Maybe you'll see a little bit. Maybe you'll curse them. So let me tell you something. You're a man. You're a son of Zippor. And here's a beautiful truth. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. The contrast is simply the changing nature of man and the immutability of God, which is a word that means God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we have a problem because we read certain texts in the older versions, the old King Jimmy version, that talks about God repenting. And fortunately, the translators have changed it because it wasn't as much of a hang-up in 1611 as it is today. But, for instance, when God looked down upon the earth when Noah was upon it before the flood. God said, it repents me that I have made man. Now, as you read the text, it would appear as though God is changing his mind. The problem is a language problem. The problem is simply describing God in human language. You see, we're humans. 
We have human emotions. We have human actions. And we describe each other's actions and emotions. And we can understand each other because we're all flesh and blood. So if I say, I have a headache, you can go, you know, I can relate to that. Or I feel depressed. Well, yeah, I've had my bouts with it. You can relate. It's a human emotion. The problem is when you rise to a higher level and now you try to describe that which is infinite in language which is finite, you can see you've got quite a barrier. And so you read a scripture, you know, you don't know what's in God's mind, what God is thinking, and you know, really, does God even have to think? Does anyone who knows everything, the end from the beginning, even have to come up with a strategy and think it through? No. It would appear not. God is unchanging. He's immutable. Yet so that you and I can grasp it and understand it, it is put in human language. The Bible is filled with that language. The theological technical term is anthropomorphism. Anthro, man, apomorphism, language given about God that men can understand. Or anthropopathism. Listen, it's not important that you remember those terms. You won't get quizzed at the end of Numbers. But simply to say that the Bible is filled with stuff, language, for humans about that which is infinite, about God, His nature, His character, so that we can understand it. And sometimes it's very picturesque. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. Does God need a retina and an iris and neurons and synapses that go to a cerebral cortex and medulla oblongata and cella tersica? He doesn't need that. He's God. He's not flesh. Or the wings of the Lord spread out. Does God really have wings with feathers on it? This is picturesque language to describe infinite God. And so God never changes. And, and, and this is the sublime truth that's captured right here. Nor is he the son of man that he should repent. By the way, this ought to excite you. And I think biblical doctrine is awfully exciting. What if God was not immutable? What if God was like you and I? What if God changed? You know, people say, well, I don't know. You know, God changed, and I think God... Why would you want to believe that? It says in Malachi, God says, I am the Lord God, I, I change not. In James, it talks about the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation of turning. Yet somehow we want to bring God down to manageable level like us. God, we want to create you in our image, in our likeness, so we can worship ourselves. Why on earth would you want a changing God? If God was not immutable, think how precarious your future would be. What if God decided to change his mind about salvation? So you get, you know, to judgment day, and you've been trusting in Jesus Christ, and you said, I've changed my mind. I didn't feel like saving you. Go Get out of here. It enables us to rest and to trust because God is immutable. It's a wonderful, wonderful teaching. He's not a man that he should repent or the, the son, uh, lie there or the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Yes, he will do it. Or has he spoken will he not make it good? He'll make it good. Behold, I've received a command to bless. Or I, I have received a command to bless. He is blessed and I cannot reverse it. Look, this is God's word. And verse 21 is something that absolutely is staggering to me. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. 
Now, you and I have read this book, and we've seen a lot of wickedness in Jacob. We've seen a lot of sin in this camp. And it, here's a statement about God and the standing of man before God. And what it is referring to, by the way, is Israel standing before God, not the state of Israel, which is up and down. They sin and they do good, and, but ultimately that's standing. God doesn't, it's there, the sin is there, but the observation here is that he hasn't observed iniquity in Jacob or seen wickedness in Israel. I like that, and I apply it to my life. And David liked that. Blessed is the man, said David, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whom God will not hold his sins against. He's a happy man. He's a blessed man. His transgressions are forgiven. So nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, is God is, uh, Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. So I think of my life. And I fall short. I fall short in a lot of areas. I admit that freely to you. Ask my son. Ask my wife. They'd be, they could be, if they wanted to, be quick to talk about all my imperfections. I could tell you about myself. I do often. I fall short. And yet, I am relying upon Jesus Christ for God to look at me through the blood of Jesus Christ as being righteous. He'll see me as my sins, as far as the east is from the west, washed completely away. You know what that does to me? It gives me peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has acquitted me. The verdict's in. Not guilty. Yeah, but he's done a lot of cruddy stuff, I know, but his defense attorney is my son. And he paid the price for him. Verse 23, For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. I love that too. A few years ago when we had a spiritual warfare conference, I got a message from a group of Satanists, and it came from many different directions. They basically said, uh, the, the message is, we as the church of Satan are praying against Skip Heitzig. And we're praying daily that, you know, curses will come on him and his family, this and that. I listen to that. Who cares? You know, like big wow, big whoop. You're going to curse whom God has blessed. There's no sorcery in Jacob. Sorcery of any Satanist. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I was at a meeting some years ago and at a church in California where I lived, and a, an ex-Satanist was there. He said he was a priest or a warlock or some goofy thing, and maybe he read livers, I don't know, but he... Uh, said that when he was preparing curses, and they had books, they have manuals of the preparation of curses, and he said, let me tell you something, folks. Satan is powerful, and this stuff really works. I've seen many lives ruined by these curses. As Satan is powerful, and demons are real, and they'll work havoc in people's lives. He said, as a Satanist, we made sure that the persons that we were cursing were not born-again Christians. That was his terms. He said, if they were, we found that the curse that we would speak would reverse itself. It would, it would come on us. And we would get the full brunt of the curses that we spoke. And I heard that and I thought, again, there's no sorcery against God's people. 
God protects you. Satan is real. He can't oppress his people. He can't possess God's people. But there is a hedge. Sometimes in God's sovereignty, he'll remove the hedge for his own purpose. But by and large, there's no sorcery. No divination against Israel. It now, it, now it must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Let that always be your anthem. Never say, Oh, what I have done. Oh, I've been such a faithful vessel. Or, Oh, let me tell you about my ministry. You don't have a ministry. It's God's ministry. It's God's work. You and I, as Jesus said, are only servants. We're slaves. The man who came in, Jesus talked about, who came in and worked in the fields all day, doesn't come to his master and say, look, I want dinner first. I'm the servant. But rather say we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what is our duty. So don't look for glamour or for notoriety. Just serve. Be a slave. And say, look what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. When I was in Africa a few years back, we were in a friend's old Land Rover and we were looking at the wildlife in Kenya. We finally found a lioness. We drove up about 10 feet from her. We didn't get out. But she was laying safely. Her belly was filled. Obviously, she had just come in from a kill. She had, you know, she wasn't r rising up. She had finished her meal. And she was just cruising. And we were, you know, driving around her. And she was just looking at us, you know, just like, I am just cruising. I'm having a great time. Don't bother me. And so we left her. But uh, I read this and I can see the imagery. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. In other words, if you're not going to say anything bad against them, don't say anything at all. So Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you, saying, All that the Lord speaks, that I must do? Balak said to Balaam, Please come, and I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be that God, uh, please God, that you may curse them from there. This guy will not give up or take a hint. Balaam, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Balaam said to Balak, Build for me seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls, seven rams, a whole rigmarole. They go through it. Balak did as Balaam had said, offered a bull and a ram on every altar. It took a long time. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery. Interesting. In the past he tried sorcery. Now he's just going to forego all that. By the way, when it says there's an oracle that is written, it's the Hebrew word mashal. It is a unique word. It is never used of a prophecy of a godly prophet in the Old Testament. It seems to be a word reserved here for a proverb, and in this sense, the proverb of the ungodly. Balaam raised his eyes, verse 2, and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his oracle, and he said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man who whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. What do you think Balak's thinking right now? He is fuming. You'll see that in just a moment. I love it. 
How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord. I think he's speaking prophetically of how rich it will be in the land of Canaan when, when they're there, enjoying the land, being very productive in that place. Like cedars besides the waters, he shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed, I love this, shall be in many waters. You know what the imagery is of a tree that overgrows over, uh, a stream and the seeds fall down into the stream and the stream takes those seeds long distances where they eventually take root. They're planted and they grow up. Fruit in distant places is the imagery here. You know, God not only wants your life to be fruitful here, but he wants your fruit to go in so many places. You can sow seeds wherever you are. And I would suggest that you sow spiritual seed, evangelism, in every stream. Who knows what will happen? You might share with a person who's standing in line at a grocery store. That person might have a seed planted in his heart, shine it on for now, get saved later, move back to Boston where he's from, start a church, other seeds will grow, that some of those people go overseas, you can have fruit in distant places. How else can you do it? You can support missionaries. Support God's work all over the world. Not everybody is a goer, but all of us can be senders and help those who go. And as the seed is carried, the stream goes on and it plants in other cultures. And you'll get to heaven. And you'll meet people you've never met here. And they'll say, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for what? Well, I came to the Lord because of you. What do you mean? I never met you. Yeah, but you gave money to this guy and he went over to that country and he shared the gospel with me. And I came to Jesus. Fruit in distant places. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, what's wild about this is Agag didn't exist. At the time this prophecy was written, Agag is somebody who comes when Saul is the first king of the monarchy well into the land in the 10th century B.C., hundreds of years after. So, A, this is a prophecy about a guy named Agag, which could be a typical Amalekite name at the time, or... It's prophetic of Agag in the future, whom Saul has a war against, and probably that's it. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. That would be Balak. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies as a lion, as a lion who will rouse him. <laughs> blessed is he who blesses you. Now he's saying this over Israel. Blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. Almost word for word what God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. This pagan prophet picks up on that. And Bala can hear it all. Um, whoever blesses you gets blessed. And Bala, you know, if you curse them, look out. Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. He's throwing a tantrum. Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. That's a line that you will hear often if you serve God. Oh, you could have been a great doctor or lawyer or somebody important. You're going to the mission field? You know, your God is keeping you back from lots of pleasures and lots of benefits of this society and this culture. 
If you wouldn't serve that God or read that Bible so much, oh, look what you could become. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will, but what the Lord says, that I must speak. And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you. Now listen to this, on what this people will do to your people in the latter days. The term latter days is a particular phrase. It's a technical phrase in the Old Testament. Generally, it refers to a messianic era, the future, the latter days. With that in mind, listen to this. This is amazing. He took up his oracle and he said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with his eyes open wide. I see him, but not now. Who could he be speaking of? I behold him, but not near. In other words, somebody's coming, but not right away. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter, or a king, shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult, that is, the ultimate reign, which would include Edom, Moab, and everybody else. And Edom shall be his possession, Seir, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city." I see him. He's coming. Who is he? A star. A star. I don't like the term Christian star as applied to a person. Oh, he's a star. There's only one star. There's only one who takes center stage. That's Jesus Christ. You know what the last thing Jesus ever said was recorded in the Bible? Star. Revelation 22, the last red letter that you find in the Bible, Jesus identifies himself in Revelation chapter 22. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, period. Jesus Christ, the star of the future. Now it's past tense, of course. Now about 1,500 years after this prophecy was given, there's a group of guys who came from this exact same area where Balaam came from, the area of the Euphrates. They call themselves Magi. And they said to Herod, We have seen his star in the east. We have come to worship him. Who were these Magi? Well, they were from the courts of Babylon. They were a priestly caste of a people group known as the Medes. They used the stars, again, for predictions and so forth. Now, they're, they're strange that they would even show up at all in Bethlehem. The way I figure it, they remembered this prediction of Balaam about a star, a scepter, him who will come from afar off have dominion. Then there was a guy who was living in their area named Daniel. 
A guy who shared the responsibilities in the court of Nebuchadnezzar with all of the other magi. But he was a godly young man. And in his writings, Daniel predicted with incredible accuracy the exact time of the coming of Jesus Christ. Could be that God arranged the stars in such a manner as well as to anticipate what Daniel predicted. And God even led them through the stars. They've come to worship him from the same area. And then he looks on Amalek and says, Amalek was the first among the nations, verse 20. That is the first to attack Israel. They'll be last among the princes. And then he looked at the Kenites, took his oracle, and he said, you know, we're right there. Let's just finish it up. Firm is your dwelling place. Your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain or Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries away your captive? And he took his oracle and he said, alas, who shall live when God is, does this? But ships shall come from the coast of Cyprus, afflict Asher, Eber, Amalek, until he perishes. Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak went his way. Now, time forbids us to go on and explain all those things, so we'll pick it up again next week and finish out the chapter. And because of the nature of the next few chapters, we're going to cover in an aerial view, a lot of this book. I figure we only have a couple few weeks left. We're not going to cover every chapter because some of it's repeat. We'll explain a few things and uh, finish the book. But what a great prophecy. And what a great lesson in the sovereignty of God, the immutability of God. So don't think you can change God. You say, yeah, well, then what about prayer? I mean, God tells us to pray, and God will somehow cooperate with our prayers and get things done. If God is immutable and sovereign, what good does prayers do? There's a lot of discussion to that, but I like to look at it this way. Prayer is not meant to get your will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. And when you find what the will of God is, Jesus said, pray for it, and it will be done. And it's a tremendous thing to cooperate with God and to know that you're in step with God and to pray for things that are His will and watch them take place. There is a sense, not where God is captive to you, but in a sovereign way will allow Himself to be limited until we pray so that we can have that benefit of cooperating and be co-laborers with Christ. It's an odd way to explain it. Again, I am finite, and so are you, and we're dealing with that which is infinite. And it's hard to go backstage in heaven and find out all the little wires that are going on. But Jesus did say pray, and he did say pray in faith, and God would honor it, and I do. And I watch God act. I watch God act powerfully in response to prayers, yet I always know that God is sovereign. So rather than me saying, I command you, God, to do this, I submit to God's sovereignty, and I say, if it's the Lord's will. Now, I know my brethren in the faith theology movement who would say it's an act of cowardice and unbelief for you to ever say if it's the Lord, Lord's will. God will honor and, and be submissive to whatever you say. I think that's bunk, and I would rather submit to God's sovereign authority and say, if you will. And where do I get my cues from? Jesus in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. James is another one I get my cues for, from. He said, never say, we will go into this city and that city and buy and sell and get gain. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills. Because you know what? I don't know what God's will is most of the time. I walk by faith, not by sight. And as God reveals it to me, I look back and go, 
Well, that's cool. Wow. And, and to think that I, I prayed that. Wow. Well, let's pray now. Father, we thank you. We admit that we don't completely understand. And that's the joy of being a dependent creature upon a sovereign and immutable God. How we need you, Lord. How we crave your fellowship. How we're thankful, Lord, how that even these connivers trying to manipulate sovereignty were unable because you blessed your people and there's no sorcery against them. And the curses may come, but they're absolutely powerless. And so, Lord, when we do spiritual battle, and we're called to do that, it is a battlefield. You've called us not to the playground, but to the battleground. I pray that rather than looking at the power of the enemy to destroy, we would see the immutable sovereign power of 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 sovereign power.